Dear Brown Girls, welcome. My name is Iza. And I'm Dia. And today we're going to be doing a kind of a different kind of episode about a topic that has been weighing on our hearts. I'm sure like all of you have been closely following the events unfolding in Ukraine. And while war, unfortunately, is nothing new, uh, the internet and social media have changed how privileged people like us understand it. Previously, for a lot of us, war was something that happened, you know, kind of over there, far away from our homes, um, which meant that we kind of had a certain level of detachment from it, for better or for worse. Now, with the world at our fingertips, thanks to smartphones, we can watch these terrible atrocities of war unfold in real time, making these horrible things more real for us and harder to ignore. And while this is hard on our hearts and minds, it's also crucial in helping us understand the suffering of the victims of war so that we can better understand them and be more compelled to help them, whether that's with our time, our voices, or money. Since the beginning of Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, the world has watched as millions of Ukrainians have been forced out of their homes. Images of mothers carrying children, the elderly carrying their pets, or those videos of fathers tearfully saying goodbye to their daughters have haunted the world. The cruelty and unfairness of this war has shaken the world out of its apathy, and people all over the world have come together to help Ukrainians as their country is ravaged by the Russian army. On a personal level, when this invasion first began, I felt as if I was living in some sort of like weird, surreal twilight zone. It's like I'm making dinner, and then I pick up my phone, and I see some horrific, explicit clip of a Russian so- soldier killing a civilian. And then I put my phone down and I go hang out with friends. And then I come back and open up Instagram and see a picture of a dog who's like cowering on the ground, paralyzed from the sound of missiles and its owners like begging it to move to safety. And it's just, these images are so heartbreaking. And yet, you know, it feels so strange to just continue on with my day knowing that this is happening. And I think this is a sentiment that a lot of us were feeling. The silver lining in all of this darkness is how the world has responded to this terrible situation. When the Russian invasion began, the world, especially Europe, was quickly to band together to respond to the calls of help from the Ukrainian people and condemn Putin's actions. Policies were changed, applications were fast-tracked, and homes were opened up in order to ensure that the innocent people of Ukraine could access shelter and safety. Even in Canada, where we're quite far removed from what's happening in Ukraine, I've walked into coffee shops and banks and retail stores that have put up signs in support of Ukraine. Um... National monuments are being lit up in blue and yellow, um, and Ukraine has become a conversation topic in even the most casual settings, because it's something that seems to have really touched people's hearts. And as wonderful these stories of hope and support have been, it's also been hard not to compare the difference in how the world, and particularly Europe, has responded to the Ukrainian refugee crisis compared to how it's responded to other refugee crises. Now, Honestly, like when I first had these thoughts, I felt really bad. I felt like, you know, it's time to focus on Ukraine. Like these thoughts aren't productive. But then I realized I wasn't alone in these thoughts. For example, on February 28th, Matt Duss, who is Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor, tweeted, As a Ukrainian-American, I am immensely proud of the bravery of Ukrainians and the support being shown by Americans. And as a Middle East analyst, I am floored at the blatant double standard on resisting occupation and resistance. We, Dia and I, we want to emphasize that our hearts are with the people of Ukraine, and we are praying and hoping 
that the people of Ukraine can return back to their homes and return to their lives. The point of this podcast is in no way to take away from the plight of the Ukrainian people or the support that's being lent to them. Every life lost in this war is a waste, like it is in any other war, and we're truly hurting for the people of Ukraine. So the purpose of this episode is to analyze why we treat different groups of refugees differently. We want to do this through a critical and yet fair lens, because the purpose of this episode isn't to be angry or to point fingers, but it's to understand what underlying factors play into this complicated issue and what we as everyday people can do to help resolve this inequality. This isn't a conversation about any specific group of people. It's a conversation about humanity and how we treat each other. And we understand that it's a complicated and sensitive topic, and we hope that we are able to approach it fairly and carefully. So one of the reasons that we felt so urged to talk about this is because the Dear Bangers podcast has always been deeply interested in race since the first episode and on how it shapes the experiences of racialized people like us. I think every racialized person has noticed how it always seems to come into play whenever we talk about refugees. There's no really escape from race for people that are racialized in our day-to-day experiences, but when it comes to aid and humanitarian aid for refugees, it always seems to be in the forefront. So that being said, for a lot of people, noticing that like differentiation and treatment is kind of started by how media, especially Western media, has been reporting on the Ukraine crisis. So I kind of wanted to start with giving a few abridged snippets of the media coverage of the crisis from different media outlets. Uh, this was a really interesting experience just because I was looking for the, this media coverage to be about the Ukraine crisis. And yet all these clips that I found were somehow these, uh, whether they're journalists or like TV correspondents, felt compelled to like put the Ukraine crisis in comparison and pit it against these other crises. And so I'm going to kind of share these different kinds of snippets and then unpack it later on. I also did a lot of research to find these and also remove comments that were taken out of context. I think there's a lot of people that are very, very angry. And so a lot of comments for people that are noticing these are actually coming from correspondents that had not really said anything out of hand. So I really wanted to make sure that these were coming from people that were very clearly making statements that were comparative and discriminatory towards different refugees. So I'll start with the most infamous journalist statement that you've probably already heard. This is from Daniel Hanan in his op-ed in The Telegraph, the title of which is, Vladimir Putin's monstrous invasion is an attack on civilization itself. It's already way too much loaded meaning the title itself. Here's an excerpt of the first few lines of his article. They seem so like us. That is what makes it so shocking. Ukraine is a European country. Its people watch Netflix and have Instagram accounts, vote in free elections, and read uncensored newspapers. War is no longer something visited upon impoverished and remote populations. It can happen to anyone. Ugh, gag. What he says is so ridiculously tone deaf. I wasn't aware having Netflix and Instagram accounts was what made something worth caring about, much less were defining characteristics of civilization. This, this continuous need to compare the Ukraine crisis at the expense of other wars or crises to emphasize it as more significant in some way, it's just like a running thread in the commentary I found on this topic. Why do these other crises need to be belittled to make us care? Next, here's a clip of um, the CBS correspondent Charlie Degata reporting on the Ukraine crisis. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, 
you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Yeah, he didn't choose them that carefully. Um, the Al Jazeera presenter Peter Dobby said... The latest pictures of some of the refugees trying to get on trains or trying to get out of Ukraine. And, and what's compelling is just looking at them, the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle-class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. Philip Corbo on France cable television news network FDM said, translated to the English. Consider helping Poland because this is going to be a big issue. We're not talking about Syrians fleeing the bombing by the Syrian regime supported by Vladimir Putin. We're talking about Europeans who are living in their cars that look like our cars, who are taking the road and trying to save their lives. And this is an issue that will be important for okay. Europe. So I don't know about you, but these clips were really <laughs> sickening for me to read and hear when I first found them. Yeah, it makes me a little teary because it's like, like I just said, when I first had this like thought cross my mind about the comparison, I like felt bad. Like I'm just being some sort of like bitter, pessimistic person. You think that maybe you're being hypersensitive because of your own experiences and then you do a little bit of digging, a little bit of digging. You just scratch the surface and you find quotes like this and it's so disheartening because it's like, there's still people all over the internet and people that would swear up and down that this isn't about race. And yet here we are, because like you said, no one asked these journalists to like compare the two. They chose to do that. They chose to draw these really disgusting parallels about what makes a life deserving of being saved, like cars and Netflix. That's just, it's so deeply disappointing. The fact that it's so like explicit and unapologetic and like this is part of normal journalism and coverage is really, really concerning. Like for example, like the first quote that's from The Telegraph where he talks about like how it's this is not a remote and impoverished place, this is Europe, right? Like that quote was like literally on the Twitter account of The Telegraph and then they like posted that quote with a link to that article and have still not removed it. Oh, that's what they wanted to lead with. Nice. <laughs> like, and, like, at no point did anybody, like, when, like, editing, publishing, putting it on Twitter, think that that was going to be problematic. So the fact that, like, this, like, reputed, well-reputed journalist has, like, gotten it to the point where it's been posted and is now, like, on, on even on, like, Twitter and being published by The Telegraph, honestly, it's confounding to me. Like, it doesn't make sense that this is even feasible. I know, it sounds like a joke. It's just, like, what compelled them to try to pull our heartstrings by, like, putting it against the suffering that other refugees have been through, right? Like, that's not how you talk about refugees. That's not how you should be talking about helping people. It's We don't compare crises. Like, we don't compare pain. Or, like, the second quote you read where the Charlie guy from CBS is like, I have to choose my words carefully. And then those are the words he chose. <laughs> I know. And I, I watched that clip of actually um, the CBS correspondent Charlie saying this, and he's almost like rolling his eyes when he's like, I have to choose these words carefully because like, of course these people are going to come for us. It's like, but why wouldn't we? Are you kidding me? Like you just basically said that we should care about these, you use the word civilized, relatively European. And even like the Ukrainians are relatively European. It's insulting to Ukraine as well. <laughs> I know. It's 
like they're relatively European. And relatively civilized. It's, it's just, it's so wild that even as a journalist for CBS, when he's like, I have to choose my words carefully, knowing that he's going to get called out, he still chose those words. That's still the best he could come up with. Yeah. yeah. And I know he has since, like, apologized, which is, like, good for you, man. Like, after the entire internet called you out, you realized that what you said was completely disgusting. Yeah. Not to mention, like, it's not just, like, these American broadcasters. We have the French broadcaster, even Al Jazeera, which is supposed to be more, like, fair with their reporting when it comes to, like, Eastern stories and, like, converting the Middle East. Like, they're still saying that, oh, they look like any European family that you would live next door to. Mm-hmm. It's just very, very, like, very disappointing to see. But these comments really hit me hard. And I, I think I me- kind of mentioned that, like, when we initially looked into it, we kind of thought we were being oversensitive. But, like, seeing this was just like, all right, this is clearly, like, a problem and we're not the only people who noticed the arab and middle eastern journals association published a statement in response to coverage of the ukraine crisis and in the statement they said and i'm kind of abridging it a little bit we call on all news organizations to be mindful of implicit and explicit bias in their coverage of war in ukraine and we condemn and categorically reject orientalist and racist implications that any population or country is uncivilized or bears economic factors that make it worthy of conflict This type of commentary reflects a pervasive mentality in Western journalism of normalizing tragedy in parts of the world, such as the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. It dehumanizes and renders their experience with war as somehow normal and expected. Newsrooms must not make comparisons that weigh the significance or amplify justification of one conflict over another. Civilian casualties and displacement in other countries are equally as abhorrent as they are in Ukraine. So yeah, the Arab and Middle Eastern Journalists Association kind of makes it clear that this type of news coverage is immensely harmful to refugees, as well as people and the journalist coverage that comes from these countries in the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. And kind of reading this and like, you know, these journalists like clearly seeing that like these people are not being represented accurately by Western media, it kind of made me think back to like coverage of Syrians, coverage of like Yemenis, um, And the fact that, like, if their experience of war is now being considered normal and expected, why would media ever feel the need now to cover these kinds of refugees and their persecution or their crisis on the news if it's normal? This is my personal opinion, but this normalization explains why we don't hear about these crises in Yemen or Myanmar or for the Uyghur people in China. If this is their normal, why even do we need to give them aid? help is needed right we've seen all that help that's going in to help the ukrainian population and by normalizing it we're almost making it easier to not give that help not provide it because this is just what the status quo is for them what i find really interesting is that the impact of this feels like okay this is just media this is just some voices we can't dismiss it that easily so an article in the guardian mustafa bayumi who's a journalist and a professor of english at brooklyn college explains why pitting these refugees against one another is a very, very dangerous present to set. So he writes, What these journalists and politicians all seem to want to miss is that the very concept of providing refuge is not and should not be based on factors such as physical proximity or skin color and for a very good reason. If our sympathy is activated only for welcoming people who look like us or pray like us, then we are doomed to replicate the very sort of narrow, ignorant nationalism that war promotes in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And this really like hit it home for me. Like we can't we can't dismiss this. We have to call these things out because constantly reinforcing that us versus them narrative that pits these people against each other are the kind of conditions that create war in the first place. 
kind of a vicious cycle and that's why it's important to have these conversations even though it's uncomfortable like I'm uncomfortable right now because it's like it's hard it's it's disheartening and it's sad and it's hard to like think about the stuff even like doing the research honestly like I had a good cry a few times because it's just like the emotional toll the mental toll it takes to see people that you identify with or people that are of your background in a passive way or an underhand way like for them to be told over and over again that they're somehow less deserving of the humanity that we're extending to other people it like takes a toll on your like mental health so when we started researching for this podcast there are a lot of articles and a lot of literature out there that is starting to look into comparing how Europe has handled this ongoing crisis with the Ukrainian refugees and how it has handled previous issues and obviously the Ukrainian war is an ongoing situation so there's a lot shifting but even in it's been what like a little over a month even in that amount of time the stark difference in how we have treated different groups has become very clear something that kept coming up over and over again in a lot of the articles I was reading was the Belarus border crisis so for some context Belarus or officially the Republic of Belarus is a landlocked country in Eastern Europe and its president Alexander Lukashenko has held power in Belarus for over a quarter of a century and last year he apparently won his sixth term as president. This election was widely viewed as being fraudulent which led to nationwide dissent to which Lukashenko's government responded with a violent crackdown. To this the EU responded by placing widespread sanctions against Belarus isolating Belarus as a country and making Lukashenko a political pariah. It's worth noting that Lukashenko's only real political friend right now happens to be Cuba. So this is happening. And then in the summer of 2021, all of a sudden, the number of people migrating into Europe through Belarus increased sharply. These people were mainly coming from Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. So they're all kind of fleeing different kinds of bad situations. In Afghanistan, this was when the Taliban offensive was kind of kicking in. In Syria, the ongoing civil war, obviously. And then from Iraq, it was mostly the Kurds, which are a um, ethnic minority that have long faced discrimination in Iraq. Now, these people were attempting to get into the EU member countries through Belarus in search of better lives. So the countries bordering Belarus that would qualify would be Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. Now, the, the EU has accused Alexander Lukashenko to have orchestrated this crisis in retaliation to the sanctions that was placed against his government. Lukashenko obviously has denied these allegations, but there is a lot of proof that his country suddenly started granting like one-way visas to a bunch of people from these countries. Uh, these people that have been interviewed have stated that they were told that, you know, like, we'll get you to Belarus. And then from there, it was kind of described to them as a very easy kind of on-foot journey further on into Europe. And so the EU has accused Lukashenko of using these migrants as pawns in sort of an attack against the EU. So many of these refugees are trying to get into Germany, which is seen as one of the wealthier, freer countries and has had a history of being kind of hospitable to refugees as far as Europe gets anyway. Currently, there are about 3,000 to 4,000 people of this group of refugees stuck at the border of Belarus and Poland because Polish authorities have vowed to prevent anyone from crossing the border. Poland has constructed border fences, brought in the military, and declared a state of emergency along the border zone. And they're actually making it really difficult for even aid organizations to get in, let alone the media to report on what's happening. 
this group of 3,000 to 4,000 people has essentially been hiding in this like foresty area since they've gotten there in the June of 2021. So like almost a year now, because there's fear of pushback and violence. So there's children, men and women hiding in the forest, dealing with extreme temperatures and a lack of food, shelter or water. And so far, at least 21 people have lost their lives. Interviewees have described that there's dire conditions on both sides of the borders because the Polish authorities are trying to push back the um, refugees into the Belarus territory because according to Polish law, anyone that enters the country through an unofficial border can be immediately returned. And the Belarus, and they're not allowing people to get further to return back from the, the, you know, the way they came from. So these refugees are experiencing terrible conditions and violence on both ends. So the UN has received reports on this issue multiple times, and it was actually spoken about in Geneva, um, where a representative said, the majority said that while in Belarus, they have been beaten or threatened by security forces, and also alleged that Belarusian security forces forced them to cross the border, instructing them when and where to cross, and preventing people from leaving the border area to return to the capital, Minsk. Furthermore, recently, Doctors Without Borders announced that they're actually withdrawing from this area because they have been repeatedly blocked from accessing these refugees that need help. They have they also have numerous reports of violence ranging from theft and destruction of people's belongings and intentional violence and physical assault on all sides of the border and have witnessed multiple people with injuries. They're reporting that people are being attacked and beaten at the hands of border guards and yet no one is doing anything about them. It's gone to a point where it seems like even civilians who are living in this area, so people living in the villages in the area that has had a state of emergency declared, they too are being actively discouraged from trying to provide any sort of help to these people. There was an article from Doctors Without Borders where they interviewed these villagers and they changed these villagers' names because they're afraid of being punished by the Polish government for helping. So one person said, I was helping one group of people who were in very poor condition and we called an ambulance. We knew the ambulance would come with the border guards, but it was impossible for us to leave these people alone without medical care and knowing that the attitude of border guards towards migrants. Another one said, the community is once again divided into those people who are happy with the services that defend the border and those who cannot remain indifferent. The military would like no one to talk about anything and everyone to sit quietly and pretend not to see anything. So not only are these people not being able to access any sort of care or to even return back to where they came from, journalists are also being prevented from reporting on this. And in Geneva, when the UN representative was reporting on this, she said, in an atmosphere dominated by a focus on security and fueled by anti-migrant narratives, practices and policy choices are being made on both sides that violate the human rights of refugees and migrants. So it seems like these people that were initially used as pawns by the president of Belarus to kind of stick it to the EU essentially are kind of continued to being used as pawns because Poland is unwilling to help this group of 3,000 to 4,000 people stuck at the border in an attempt to like send a message to Belarus or to kind of stand strong behind their like initial statement. And it's just horrific to think that there's literally just 3,000 to 4,000 people that have survived almost a year in the wilderness and yet, at the same time, the same, the, same, the same country has absorbed 1.8 million, approximately, refugees from Ukraine just in the last month. 
another comparison that's being drawn is from Syria between 2015 to 2016, when, you know, the so-called like European migrant crisis happened. And we'll talk about the phrasing of that in a second. But at the peak of this crisis, which occurred in 2015, 1.3 million Syrians were requesting asylum in Europe. And while initially there was an outpouring of sympathy, it quickly turned to hostility because the governments became concerned about how they were going to deal with this huge number of people, um, saying that 1 million was too much and it would be impossible to deal with. Political leaders fed into this mentality by making statements that made people believe that allowing these refugees to cross over to their borders would change the demographics of their countries completely for the the worse. So for example, Jarosław Kaczynski, who is the leader of Poland's right-wing party and currently the deputy prime minister, made statements in 2017 saying that it would be, quote, dangerous and, quote, completely change our culture and radically lower the levels of safety in our country, unquote, should they allow these people to migrate. And the European Union top court actually ruled in April 2020 that Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic broke EU law by refusing to host these refugees to release some of the burden from countries like Turkey and Greece, because while the EU countries were saying that they were, you know, in over their heads with this 1 million people, countries like Turkey, who were far less equipped to take people, were taking in far greater numbers. The other thing that was happening at the same time was that the media was stoking the flames of this issue as well, just like just like Dia talked about earlier with the statements that she was reading out. For example, when the Paris attacks happened in 2015, which, which was a terrorist attack, a lot of headlines connected this attack to Syrian refugees even though there was very little evidence of that. The only connection that they were able to find was there was they found a passport, a Syrian passport, um, close to one of the assailants that had been killed. And the dates on the passport suggested that this person had maybe come from Syria during the immigration crisis. That passport was found to be fake. And yet this narrative that these... Syrians were bringing crime and terrorism continued to the point that it completely changed people's mentality towards these refugees and whether they deserved to be allowed to come in and seek refuge. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, more than 2 million Ukrainians have fled their country within two weeks, and Poland alone has absorbed 1.8 million of those people. While initially it was kind of difficult for people to cross over the border into Poland, Poland was very quick to change their processing so that they could receive Ukrainian refugees faster. So currently the crossing border is quick and seamless and the Polish border police are registering about 80 to 100,000 individuals every day. Furthermore, civilians within Poland are encouraged to help provide aid so people are just opening up their homes or guest houses and hotels are opening up rooms for these people which again is very different to how the poland authorities are wanting people to respond to the people stuck at the belarus border where they're being actively discouraged and sometimes even punished for even providing the most basic aid to these refugees so obviously like dia said earlier we're not here to compare crises because that is a not appropriate and be way over our heads because those things are so convoluted and there's so much to take into account but if we just even look at poland as a country even if we don't look at europe across the board if we just look at poland 
and how they have responded to two groups of people, not just in the past, but currently. Currently, there are 3,000 to 4,000 people stuck that they're not letting in and are just continuing to push back into a violent situation while at the same time, I'm at a different border crossing, accepting a different group of people very openly. And again, this is not to take away from the kind actions of the Polish people. Like the fact that people have opened up homes to these people is beautiful. But it is obviously worth noting the two very different approaches that the Polish government has taken to two different sets of refugees who are both fleeing violence and terror and ask, what is the difference? I think when you compared, like when you brought up that comparison to Syria, which I think is like, you know, the biggest migrant crisis that we faced in the past like decade, it also kind of brings that point of like that speed of that response, right? Because like 1.8 million refugees accepted otherwise in in other places in Europe, like within a month, right? Like that that speed Mm -hmm. is something that like clearly the European Union has always been capable of doing since they've shown that they can do it now. So this kind of makes you wonder like, okay, so what are those reasons? What are those justifications? Like what are those obstacles that have made it um, harder for these resources and these countries to come together to accept the refugees that came before the Ukrainian refugees? And I think this would be a good time to say that in drawing this comparison, we're not, what we're trying to say is that the way that the Ukrainian refugees are being treated and hopefully will continue to be treated while they're continuing to need aid, if that can become the golden standard for how we treat people in need, that would be fantastic. We're not saying that like you treated the Syrians really poorly and therefore you need to do the same with Ukrainians. We're saying that there's this huge discrepancy in how you treat different kinds of refugees. And it would be really wonderful if we could extend the same amount of humanity and grace to people outside of Ukraine. In trying to understand why this discrepancy exists, obviously, like we've already said, race plays a role, but like, why does it play a role? Like, why does this double standard exist? And why do people take part in it almost passively without even thinking sometimes, right? So Obviously, there's a cultural, religious reason. It's easy to understand that you would be more sympathetic towards people that are familiar or even to people who live in a country that you have relatives in, you know, like that you share a common language with who look like you. And that is something that we do as humans without even meaning to. Like the familiar is what we associate to safety, right? And the unfamiliar is what we associate with being dangerous, So it makes sense that naturally this would be our response, but that isn't to say that that makes it okay. And like, just because that's our reflex response doesn't mean that it can be used as justification to continue to treat people that are different poorly. So this cultural slash religious distinction can be problematic. So for example, Slovakia, which so far has taken in 140,000 Ukrainian refugees, said in 2015 that they will only accept Christians from Syria, which is wild to me. It's wild that these kind of policies can exist and people are just like, okay, like in this day and age where like that's just like blatant religious discrimination. And yet an entire country's foreign policy has been based on that. The fact that like culture and religion play a huge role in the, the people that we see as like us and the people that we can better empathize with is for sure true. But sometimes I'm, I think that it's also used as like a crutch to justify things that are really, really just based on mm-hmm. race 
so they're accepting like only Christians from Syria, but like that means that they're assuming that potentially the all these Ukrainians are, you know, good Christians like the Slovakians are, right? Like it has this underlying kind of deduction that comes from it that this is this religious similarity is what's important. For example, Ukrainians have their own language. It's not necessarily the case that they're going to be speaking the same language as the people in the country that they go to, right? So like a lot of these perceived like commonalities are sometimes just like, you know, a justification for things that are based actually on race. And other times like, yes, we're they're authentically because these like religious similarities and cultural similarities make it a lot easier to understand the plight of other people. And then in that vein of like easiness, like obviously accepting a huge amount of people into a geographical area in a small amount of time is going to put a strain on it. Like that makes sense. So back to the Syrian crisis, that was one of the primary arguments in Europe was that we just we just can't handle this number of people, which was around 1.3 million. And yet we have seen that Poland alone was able to absorb 1.8. Now, that's not to say that Poland isn't going to face challenges with this influx of refugees, right? Especially considering that the majority of refugees coming out of Ukraine are children and the elderly or women who have young children. So these aren't necessarily people that are going to like hit the ground running and like be able to like immerse into society and start working like and not even to speak about all the trauma that the Ukrainians are bringing with them that they're going to have to work through. The people of Poland have decided that those things will be dealt with later because right now what matters is getting these innocent Ukrainians out of harm's way. And it's like this beautiful moment of where humanity is taking precedence over anything else. And yet at the same time, it's not for another group of people. So when we're talking about resources, we're not trying to dismiss the challenges that come with accepting a large group of people. And you know what? It's fair. Like, especially if you are accepting a large group of people that doesn't speak your language or doesn't understand your customs, that would add an extra layer for sure. But if you're able to put it aside for one group of people, because, you know, humanity is what matters and we need to save innocent lives, it's like those same principles do apply to other refugees. Yeah, and it's about the fact that they no longer have a safe place to call home, regardless of where that home is and what they did there, right? Refugees are defined by the fact that they're fleeing from a place that they can't live in anymore and not by their race, their culture, their religion, right? And then there's obviously huge amounts of stigmas attached to certain groups of people, especially it seems like Arabs in Europe. Quotes that Dia read out earlier speak to those. The Prime Minister of Bulgaria actually very recently made a statement about the Ukrainian people where he said, these people are Europeans, these people are intelligent, they are educated people. This is not the refugee way we have been used to, people with unclear pasts who could have been terrorists. It just blows my mind, again, that someone that has been elected to be a prime minister of a country feels that these are okay statements to make. And, like, you can only like imagine the effect these words are ha- having on Bulgarians, where the prime minister had just gone up and said that these people are more worthy of safety because they're probably not terrorists like the other people. I'm like, it's just preposterous sometimes. You guys can't see me, but I'm throwing my hands everywhere because I just, I don't understand. And then there's politics where people have pointed out like that not only has the support that the world has extended to Ukrainians been something amazing, but also the fact that how quickly everyone has condemned Putin like, you see these UN meetings when they're like, oh, this country is doing, just straight up committing, like, 
war crimes against people like should we condemn them and it takes so long and there's always like one country that's like "Mm, no actually for like political gain and yet it seems like in europe for the most part everyone very was very quick to condemn Putin. so when people are extending their homes to ukrainians or when poland is just opening its doors to ukraine it's not just to welcome the ukrainians it's also to send a message to this government that they're standing against you know to say that they're not going to stand for its actions and then on the flip side of that, it feels like because the Poland government wants to stick it to the Belarus leader, they're using these people as pawns who are just like stuck in this border crossing because they were misinformed and are suffering through no fault of their own. And despite being aware of this, Poland and EU are doing exactly what they're accusing Belarus of doing, which is using people as pawns. Even if you think that this whole thing was orchestrated by the leader of Belarus. The fact remains that there are the people that are dying in the forests at this border. It's horrific that these people are just being used as pawns instead of being seen as like humans that are in suffering. And I think it's worth mentioning that like the circumstances kind of came about so that it was very easy to by default say like, of course, we're going to choose to help the Ukrainians on this. Where for other crises like the Syrian crisis, which is similar. The aggressor is still like Russia that's powering Bashar al-Assad's regime. Somehow it's not as easy to side with the Syrians that are suffering. Like the politics is always going to play a part, but the fact that we are able to like come through and make decisions really quickly means that it's feasible for other kinds of situations to get rid of all those like worries about like the economic outcome, worries about the differences, worried about potential Russian retaliation and just like do the right thing. And especially because Russia is the aggressor for both like the Syrian population and the Ukrainian population, it's it's hard to see that they're not being treated the same. It's kind of like the sad kind of irony that exists. Then there's legal barriers. Ukrainians have a legal right to enter any country in the European Union and stay for up to 90 days, which is very different from the other asylum seekers that have come through, even though there are supposed to be international laws that protect asylum seekers, those laws often aren't abided by a lot of countries, especially when the group of migrants is coming from outside of Europe. Like I said earlier, there was a European court that ruled that Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic broke EU law by refusing to host refugees, and yet it's continuing to happen. So like we said earlier, the vast majority of Refugees coming in through Ukraine are women and children and elders, which again are groups that are generally, that people are generally more sympathetic towards versus oftentimes what we see in groups coming from countries like Afghanistan, Syria, or Iraq, those groups can be predominantly men because it's often, you know, one person that will leave the family to kind of step out and start paving the way for the rest of the family. As far as perception goes, men can be seen as more of a threat to society than a group of women, children, and seniors. It's interesting because, like, young men are viewed more as a threat and yet, like, they're, you know, more economically safe choices because it's easier for them to, like, hit the ground running, get a job, get started, than, like, women that have children to take care of and the elderly. Yeah, it just seems like the argument flip-flops depending on where you're coming from. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. One thing we... Deanna, I noticed 
researching this is the use of the word migrant versus refugee and how that can change people's perception. Because again, refugees are a group of people that people feel more sympathetic towards versus when people say migrant, they generally consider that a person that is choosing to leave a country and migrate to a different country outside of having a need to go. So it's not like they're in danger, they're just choosing to do so. So in 2015, when the Syrian refugee crisis was happening, a lot of newspapers or literature started referring it to as Europe's migration crisis versus Syria's refugee crisis or Europe's refugee crisis. And that language kind of can create a different narrative depending on how you're using it. Because if you're saying the Syrian refugee crisis, it's referring to the plight of the Syrian people. But if you're suddenly calling it Europe's migration crisis, what is the crisis that you're referring to? Is it the crisis of the, the pe- that the people of Syria are facing that they're trying to escape from? Or is it the crisis that Europe is now facing because they're trying to home these people? Or that the crisis that Syrians are reflecting onto Europe? And this is something that can happen subtly that people don't necessarily pick up on, but you're completely taking away the focus from the people that you're talking about by f- calling it Europe's migration crisis. Because suddenly Europe is the victim of all these people, despite the fact that these people are refugees fleeing from war and violence. Yeah, and by labeling the refugee a migrant, you're like erasing their history of like persecution, the fact that they're fleeing from a country where they felt unsafe, which which also kind of somehow erases that humanitarian responsibility that comes from how we are supposed to deal with refugees. Suddenly they're migrants and they maybe have a choice. And so maybe now Europe has a choice on whether or not they can accept or reject them into their country. I think one of the good examples of like how people or countries are differentiating between them is the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who said, we are not living in a comfortable West. We are living in the midst of difficulties, not just now, but throughout our history. So we are able to tell the difference between who is a migrant and who is a refugee. Migrants are stopped. Refugees can get all the help. And so this differentiation is really interesting because like we've seen that the Syrian refugees have been referred to as migrants as you know public opinion changed and Europe started like dealing with the consequences of accepting all these refugees and passing a lot of anti, um, anti-asylum anti legislation. And a lot of it has kind of boiled down to this differentiation of how to deal with them. If we don't consider them refugees, then we no longer have that social and political responsibility to aid them, right? And suddenly there's a lot more options in how we can treat them. And so the rhetoric of like using Syria's refugee crisis versus Europe's migrant crisis drastically affects public opinion, drastically affects uh, the media coverage, but also, you know, winds its way down, impacting the legislation that is meant to help these people and potentially finds loopholes and ways to deny them that help. Now it's like playing into legislation, we can kind of track how this kind of discrimination, you know, suddenly turns into a systemic discrimination. It's built into the systems that these countries are perpetuating now. The other thing is that like we also have to remember that these political leaders are like often just they're making political moves, they're making decisions based on how the public is responding and like what the public wants because A, they're supposed to be public servants and B, they want to be reelected. So if the way the media is spinning things is creating a certain kind of rhetoric amongst the public, it doesn't matter what one person was hoping to do, it can entirely shift the legislation. It's like during the Syrian crisis where like Germany's leader she was made famous for a statement where she made where she essentially was like well we can handle it she was essentially saying that they were gonna like fight to have these refugees make their way to germany and help them find homes 
And then the German people turned on her and she had to drop that whole thing. And essentially that led to the terrible deal that Germany struck with Turkey. So it's like, even when people have good motives, if the public perception is skewed, it's going to trickle into legislation, which is going to continue to perpetuate the violence or perpetuate these terrible conditions that people are subjected to. Yeah, I'm going to talk about a couple different things that different um, political leaders have said. And I definitely agree that a lot of it is just reflecting and reinforcing like public opinion in these countries themselves, because that's how they're going to get those votes passed in, right? Uh, For example, the Chancellor Karl Nehammer of Austria spoke of Austria's openness to taking Ukrainian refugees when just last year, he insisted against resettling Afghan refugees and were forcibly deporting Afghan asylum seekers. He said, it's different in Ukraine than in countries like Afghanistan. We're talking about neighborhood help, which kind of reinforced the idea of like, it's the proximity that matters, right? Like the proximity, the similarity, and so on. A member of the New Democrat ruling party in Greece, Dimitris Kyridis, said, To say it cynically, we're not talking here about a massacre in a distant place somewhere in the depths of Africa with irreligious people, but about, to say it completely cynically, I know it sounds politically unorthodox, but unfortunately this is what counts. Christians, white people, Europeans, who are from us, who come from us. I think my head just exploded a little bit. And I'm just saying that, maybe you want to like find it. Oh my god. So yeah, so there's a distant place, it's a massacre, these people are irreligious, and somehow because they're not religious, they're not white, they're not European, they don't deserve our help. And I, I find that statement where he says, you know, who are from us, who come from us, just so provocative, because it like just brings you back to that us versus them rhetoric that has like really dominated media since 9-11, right? Like, it's just been these people are us and all these people are not like us. All these people are others when really we should be defining them as refugees as a whole and not like refugees like us versus refugees that are the other. I think we talk about the distinction between the migrant and refugee crisis and it's just one of the many ways that European countries have legislated in ways that are discriminating against other refugees as well as discriminating between them. So yeah, I do want to note the context of these situations are really different and we can't really always compare them one to one. And I think like Isa mentioned it when she was comparing these different reasons is that this context is really, really important. There's also the fact of proximity and the fear of nuclear escalation from Russia, especially because Putin threatened nukes to like countries that decided to aid Ukraine with their weapons and so on. And it's made a lot of the accommodations that Ukrainian refugees have gotten, you know, it's made everything kind of happen faster because there's been that fear of retaliation. So that there's making sure that these refugees are being taken care of and these things are handled in a more urgent manner. And when it comes to the crisis of Ukraine, it's like, it's still new. It's been about a month and a month and a bit since it's started. And public opinion might also change and evolve as the months pass. And hopefully this crisis ends sooner rather than later. But the public opinion will change as months go by, as it did for Syrian refugees in 2015. The direction it will go, we do not know. Which is why, again, it's so important to draw these comparisons for the sake of saying that this should be the new golden standard versus like reverting back to how we treated the Syrians. This shows that we are capable of accepting refugees quickly in huge amounts. And that therefore, instead of, you know, allowing us to fall victim to the same kind of prejudices and biases we've had against other people or the fears that we let take hold of us, we should 
try to use how we are treating Ukrainian refugees and the sympathies that we're ex- extending towards them as a gold standard to all refugees. It's also mentioned that Ukrainians are allowed visa-free entry for 90 days to European countries. But in addition, quickly after the war in Ukraine broke out, the European Union actually passed um, the Temporary Protection Directive, which allows Ukrainians to move freely across the European Union, be able to live and work instantly upon arrival, as well as offering them social services benefits like housing and medical care. This also means that Ukrainians are given temporary residency status without having to go through complex asylum procedures as other refugees do. Interestingly, they're also allowed the the ability to enter and choose which country they would like to go to, whereas regular refugees are required to ask for asylum in the first member state they enter and are not given any choice. So like, for example, if those um, refugees that are trying to enter Poland from the Belarus border had an option of asking for asylum in another country, it probably would be easier for Poland to let them in if they knew that they would apply and they had the option to apply somewhere else. But at this point, Poland knows that it has to accept them and that makes them less likely to do so. Potentially, there is a country maybe further west of Europe that you know doesn't have maybe the same relations with Belarus as Poland does that you know, might be more willing to accept them. But that's not an option that's available because these refugees have to apply for refuge in Poland since that's the country that they're going to enter. So these broad acting decisions across the European Union has naturally affected the legislation of the countries that I'm going to be talking about now. Uh, I also wanted to add this temporary protection directive was passed very quickly within four days of being proposed. Um, And this was like early March, I believe March 3rd or something. And this is actually the activation of a 20-year-old refugee protection clause that was created in 2001. And this was created following the Kosovo refugee crisis, and interestingly, has never been activated before. So in contrast, the majority of Syrian refugees were actually allowed to enter Europe in 2015, which is four years after the war in Syria began. So since the Syrian refugee crisis began in 2015, both Greece and Denmark, among many other European countries, have increasingly added more um, legislation that makes it harder for these asylum seekers to actually get their residency papers and, you know, actually get asylum in these countries. Of course, a lot of these things were bypassed for Ukrainian refugees in 2022. But let's kind of look into what kind of legislation was passed that made it really hard. So the Danish government in 2019 assessed that living conditions in Damascus, which is in Syria, had improved and it was safe for people to return to, and then started reviewing the status of several hundred Syrian refugees from that region. This is a bit crazy. I think we know that Syria is still in a very tenuous situation. And the Secretary General of the Danish Refugee Council, Charlotte Slent, said, we disagree with the decision to deem the Damascus area or any other area safe uh, in Syria for refugees. We have knowledge that from various reports of arbitrary detention and ongoing civil rights abuses of the civilian population in Syria. This is very controversial within Denmark as well. And the head of the Refugees Welcome Denmark Association reported that as of March 2021, 600 Syrian refugees have already had their residency statuses stripped. And the people that have had it stripped, they're forced to move to deportation facilities where they have to check in every evening. They have no income and they have no right to work or study. 
So it's made the lives of these people very, very difficult. And because Denmark doesn't have like a political relationship with Syria, like they can't actually deport them. And so they're just like making their lives very difficult in these deportation facilities. Not to mention because these refugees have been denied asylum in the country that they entered, they are now in a space where they're like, where can we go? Because they can't work, they can't make money, they can't study to change their economic situation, but they also no longer have citizenship which is, you know, the whole point of accepting refugees to, like, give them citizenship to a country. It's wild, because, like, so much of the, when there is anti-refugee re- rhetoric is the whole, like, well, they're not going to be adding to society, or there's going to be a drain. It's like, a, but if you're going to create systems that literally don't allow them to grow as people or do anything for themselves, they're going to continue to be that drain that you are accusing them of being by no fault of their own. Like these people might be trying to like better themselves and like contribute to society, but you're creating conditions so that you can continue to use the same garbage reasons to keep them out. Yeah. And not to mention these are people that were already granted residency. They're having it stripped from them. These aren't asylum seekers anymore. So it's like, even when you've gotten asylum even when you've gotten that residency like you're not necessarily safe it's still considered a temporary permit or residency can you imagine how wild that is like i remember when my parents got their pr and what a big moment that is when you think like you're good you've made it you're safe and then someone comes around and is like that can just be taken away and now you're living in this weird camp where you have to check in with someone every evening um denmark also passed this like controversial jewelry bill that made both like is and i super emotional it's just like, it's, it's, <laughs> and we'll explain why in a second. <laughs> Basically, it empowers authorities in Denmark to seize cash and valuables from asylum seekers to cover their expenses. So basically it goes into like, you know, like the whole tax refund to like cover like the cost of taking in refugees. And so this is like very, very, very controversial in Denmark as well. So essentially what's happening is these um, refugees that are coming in there, like whether they have cash or valuables, the reason it's called a jewelry bill is because, you know, jewelry is included, will be taken from them in order to pay for the expense of like taking in refugees. And I think like we've kind of talked about, like I obviously like I'm not like Syrian, I don't, I'm not like sure like specifically about Arab culture, but like, like, but, like in, in Desi culture, like gold, jewelry, this is like not just your, this is not just like ways of like, you know, like they're not just like beautiful ornaments or your history that your heritage. Like I wear bangles that were my grandmother's and I want to give them to my kids if I have any and to have potentially like them taken from me, it would just be awful. And especially the fact that these people are coming to the country like with all their savings and they're coming in with money that will hopefully help them hit the ground running and build a home and like more quickly contribute to society is suddenly being taken from them so that like Neither can they, like, they, they've lost, whether it's jewelry or their relics or their, like, evidence of their heritage or history. They've also lost, like, a little bit of the cash that would have helped them have food because they can't make money. And for a lot of these people, the jewelry is security to start. Like, in a lot of cultures still in this day and age, like, women are gifted gold at their wedding because it's, like, it's security for them. It's, like, a, a, an emergency fund for them in the form of jewelry. And like both Dia and I grew up in families like my grandmother wore golden bangles her entire life like they were she never took them off I don't think they would have even been able to come off like they were you know like her hands are going around them and it just it broke my heart to think of some like old Syrian grandma who's been forced to leave everything she's had behind only to find out that now she's being stripped of her only security and peace of home. Uh, this year, Rasmus Stokeland, who's the foreign affairs spokesperson for Denmark's ruling Social Democratic Party, told CNN that the jewelry law will not apply to Ukrainians because they're not going to be part of the asylum system. 
once the legislation exempting them is approved. So like I kind of mentioned, because of the European Union's like quick handling of the Ukrainian crisis, they basically automatically get earned one year of a temporary residency and they get to bypass the entire asylum seeking process. It also includes, I guess, this jewelry bill. And so it, it's it's just like, like, I think the jewelry bill is like really hard hitting to me because it's just so petty. Like it feels just like, oh, let's make it, let's make, you know, everything harder. Like let's not even let them keep the stuff that they were managed to salvage from the home they came from, right? Like, it just feels like, like, some of these legislations are like, all right, this is really problematic, but like, this is just like, unnecessary. So especially because if it really was necessary, why would the Ukrainians be exempt from it? Exactly. Yes, because the Ukrainians have been freed up of having to like deal with the asylum seeking process, they can instead take their time and energy into like, rebuilding their life or like trying to like find a job so that they can like contribute in different ways it's again this like vicious cycle where it's like well we're taking this money from you because we need to be able to support you because you're not going to be able to because of the same bs policies we've created that strap you in and don't allow you to work and support yourself that's denmark fun i know so (laughs) in contrast to the fact that obviously the ukrainian refugees are bypassing this asylum application process Greece has done its darn hardest to make that process as complicated as possible for the refugees that they already have. As of December 2021, under 18,000 refugees currently live in camps on the Greek mainland. And in 2020, Greece passed legislation that restricts services to those who are in the process of applying for asylum. Thus, 60% of this 18,000 refugees are not eligible for food or cash handouts. And this has resulted in a huge like hunger crisis in these camps where these people are applying for asylum but meanwhile they have like no help from the country whatsoever and that's not all so there's another category of refugees that aren't even allowed to apply for asylum in greece in june 2020 a ministerial decision deemed turkey a safe third country for afghans syrians somalis pakistanis and bangladeshis in 2016 when the syrian refugee crisis was ramping up the european union and turkey made a deal that required both of them to readmit rejected asylum applicants because it, like both the European Union and Turkey had rejected a lot of Syrian ref- Syrian refugees. And so in order to like make it easier for these people to get um, asylum, that deal was passed so that they would have to readmit any previously rejected applicants. However, Turkey has stopped admitting them since March of 2020. So Melina Spathari, who's like the advocacy manager for Terrorism, which is an aid organization in Greece, said, Turkey does not accept returns from Greece. These people are in a legal limbo, and one of the consequences of this limbo is that they are not eligible for food and other basic rights. So for some reason, specifically for Afghans, Syrians, Somalis, and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, Greece has just decided that Turkey is like the place for them to go and will not even consider any asylum application from them, despite the fact that Turkey isn't actually accepting them. People who fail to register as asylum seekers upon entry in Greece, which is possible, so if you basically enter Greece and you don't register as an asylum seeker like immediately, you are just deemed inadmissible for the asylum process. And Greek has basically had like these reports of the police conducting a sweep, which has been authorized as an operation to target petty crime and drug dealers, but actually has resulted in 125 people without papers being taken to a detention center. If you kind of like think about all these things happening at once, suddenly a lot of the refugees that are in that are in the mainland, if they didn't apply in time, they can't apply. If they Um, if they're from specific countries that they've somehow deemed ineligible, they're told to go to Turkey and they also cannot apply for asylum. And all the people that 
have not been able to grant an asylum and also cannot apply for asylum are no longer get, getting any aid from food or cash from the country. So these people are like stuck. And then to top it off, the country is just like arresting people without papers, despite making it very, very hard for these people to get residency papers and sending them to detention centers. Um, Lucy Alper, who's the legal coordinator for refugee legal support, said that systemic failures and barriers within the Greek asylum system cause many people to be undocumented. It is harder than ever to register claims for asylum on mainland Greece, yet now police are arresting people for not being registered. So it talked about Greece, it talked about Denmark, they're just one of many countries that have passed increased anti-asylum legislation since the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015. Hungary also passed a law in 2016 that legalized pushbacks, which is a practice of pushing asylum seekers back across the borders without due process. And Greeks, Greek actually has done a similar thing, although it hasn't been uh, legally done, where it's been pushed back asylum seekers to Turkey. And that these pushbacks have actually been deemed in violation of EU law by the European Court of Justice. Okay, so looking at kind of like this, this like treatment that's kind of gone on for in Greece, Denmark, Hungary, many other countries like Poland and the Czech Republic, which were also noted to have broken EU law by not hosting refugees, it's kind of shocking to see the swift and open response towards Ukrainian refugees in contrast. Thinking about these things, like, personally, like, it makes me think that the future can go one of three ways. One, many aid workers and I are hopeful that this is a change that will push asylum reform in the European Union to more equitably treat all refugees in their countries, not just specific ones that we somehow deem can bypass specific legislation. Not to say that we should make things harder, we should make things easier, we should make things to the standard that Ukrainians are seeing as they are fleeing Ukraine. For example, already the House of Commons Immigration Committee in Canada has voted to issue a public statement in April, which has urged the government to provide the same special immigration measures as it has to Ukrainian refugees in other regions. So let's look at number two. Dmitry Chuli, who's a lawyer who's worked years representing asylum seekers in Greece, said, I'm afraid that soon, when the lights go out and there's a ceasefire, but the country is still in pieces, these people will still be coming, and then Europe will put up fences for the Ukrainians. Like I mentioned earlier, this is still new and newsworthy, and it's unclear how public opinion will evolve regarding the Ukrainian refugee crisis. And obviously, we don't want things to get worse for the Ukrainians. We want other refugees to have the reform and see the same level of support and services that Ukrainians are seeing. And three... This will just be an example of European hypocrisy on how it treats refugees it deems other and those it deems like them. And treatment for these other refugees will not improve. Uh, because neither option two or three are acceptable eventualities after this crisis. We don't want treatment of the Ukrainians to worsen and we don't want this hypocrisy and this, is, and this discrimination and treatment of these different refugees to stay the same. We need to change public opinion as well as expose this hypocrisy in order to create a fair asylum system for all refugees, no matter where they come from. This issue has been something that's been raised on the internet, and it has been sad to see how many people are willing to bend over backwards to defend this hypocrisy or to justify it. And again, while there are contextual reasons why people might buy into this double standard that doesn't make it okay 
And so I think the first step is probably to admit that this is a real issue, a real problem. We do tend to treat one group of people better than others. And whatever justification people want to choose, it's not going to get better until we're willing to admit that this is a problem and start calling out our politicians. So it made me really happy to see the article that there's this party of MPs that Dia mentioned that's challenging the current double standard within Canadian law and trying to get the government to extend the same kind of accommodations to different refugees, such as from like Afghanistan or Syria, because they're actively still in danger. And that's what we kind of hope to do with this episode as well, is to kind of shed some light onto the hypocrisy and back it up with facts. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, us feeling a certain way or making assumptions from like one bad journalist there is a lot of evidence that this is a real thing. And it's dangerous. Like, it's dangerous and it's going to systemically impact the refugees that come in the future. If, like, by recognizing the problem and then working to mitigate it, we can work towards making the system more equitable and more fair. And hoping that the services and the legislation that has passed to accommodate Ukrainians in their time of need is something that we can extend to refugees fleeing from other countries and also to refugees that are already in the country and that are struggling. You know, it feels like part of the kindness that has been shown to Ukrainian refugees has been that we've decided that they are worth protecting because they deserve safety, right? Versus I would argue that for a lot of refugees, the experience is to prove why they deserve to be there, you know, why they deserve to leave behind the same kind of violence that we're seeing in Ukraine happening in other countries. Be seeing this because it makes you feel gross inside. It makes you like, it feels like certain groups of people are just less deserving of humanity according to the society that we're living in yeah. right now. Um, and that can kind of taint how you see the world. I know it has for me. I think it's made me a more, unfortunately, like a pessimistic, betterish person because it's real, this discrimination and racist rhetoric that has forced people to continue living in dangerous situations it's very real yeah and I think like you kind of talked about in the beginning just like it all comes down to providing the humanity for the people that are the most in need right and there's a there's a quote that's like you know you don't judge a man by how he treats his equals you judge him by how he treats um like his inferiors which like I don't like the (laughs) diction used in that quote but that like the idea is that like the way that we treat the people that are vulnerable the way that we treat the people that are impoverished the way we treat like whether it's like the homeless people in our own countries the refugees that are fleeing is really what's gonna define the character that we want for our nations is our nation gonna be the kind of nation that only accepts specific types of people and discriminates based on you know whether they have netflix accounts or own cars or have you know blue eyes or come from remote countries or you know have been undergoing war for years and years and years like are we gonna make that distinction or are we gonna say that these people are vulnerable and so it's our duty to help them and let that define the character of these countries and these nations and like the world that we live in we hope that we were able to convey our feelings on this topic properly Dee and I really struggled with this episode because we wanted to do it gently and fairly without hurting anyone's feelings or having anyone's takeaway be that 
we think that the support that the Ukrainians are receiving is like wrong in any way. We don't. We're so deeply saddened for what the people of Ukraine are going through. And we just want the same kind of grace and humanity to be shown to other people. So we'll end on a quote from Lamis Abdullati, who is the author of Discrimination and Delegation, Explaining State Responses to Refugees, who said, we all really need to think about the fact that these same images that we're seeing coming out of Ukraine, people carrying whatever they can, leaving everything else behind, sometimes leaving family members behind, walking very long distances, having to shelter from the elements. We've seen them with other crises elsewhere in the world, and yet they are provoking such a different response. We need to bring the same empathy to other refugee groups who are escaping very similar conditions and who are equally worthy of our compassion.